Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This week, we talk with Eric Kleinenberg, author of Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone. The last 50 years, many countries have witnessed a dramatic rise in the number of single adults living alone. Due in part to a high divorce rate, the delay to marriage, and even the avoidance of marriage altogether, many Americans are embracing a new era of solohood. Consider that whereas in the 1950s, 9% of Americans were single, today that percentage has reached nearly 50%. Across different demographic groups of young adults, middle-aged professionals, and retired and older Americans, many more adults are choosing to be both single and live by themselves. In his new book, Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone, Eric Kleinenberg contends that this shift in the way we organize and live our lives is both a transformative force in society, but also one in which there is much confusion and misunderstanding. As he argues, social scientists and the public at large lack, for the most part, an adequate language for framing both the appeal, but also the challenges of living and aging alone. We hope you stay tuned for this lively conversation with Eric Kleinenberg about this important and timely topic. This morning, we're lucky to have Eric Kleinenberg on the podcast, uh, author of Going Solo. Eric, thank you for being on the podcast. Happy to be here. So your book, I finished it last night. It was great. Um, I felt like I was at first going to read a book about demography, but then it was a qualitative book about how people make sense of this huge kind of shift in the population. Um, And maybe just to set up the project a little bit, what is this shift that the book is grappling with? So the book is about a a major social change that I think we haven't fully absorbed or uh, developed the language for. And that change is the incredible rise of living in the, living alone. Uh, to put this in perspective, about 60 years ago, in 1950, 4 million Americans lived alone. They accounted for about 9% of all households. They were mostly men, and they tended to live in the big open western states, places like Alaska and Wyoming and Nevada. They were migrant working people, and they were generally en route to a more conventional lifestyle. Today, there are 32.7 million Americans living alone, according to the 2011 census estimates. They account for 28% of all households. They are more concentrated in cities, and they are primarily women, about 18 or so million women compared to 14 million or so men. This is an incredible shift, and its effects on cities has been most pronounced because while 28% of households are one-person households at the national level, in places like Atlanta and Denver and Minneapolis and Cleveland and Seattle and San Francisco, it's more than 40% of all households. And in Washington, D.C. and Manhattan, where I am this morning, it's almost one in two households. So this is the kind of social change that we need to be reckoning with. Now, what's kind of feeling this change? I mean, what are the kind of broad sociological forces that are uh, moving people to be alone or living alone? You know, we should, at the outset, make a distinction between being alone and living alone. And one of the big arguments in my book is that living alone, being alone, and feeling lonely are three dramatically different things. We confuse them all the time in our conversations, both uh, in the 
public sphere and also in sociology and social science, and we really need to distinguish these different things. But that said, let me, let me answer your main question, which is, you know, how did this happen? What's driving it? And the first thing I would say is that you can't understand this outside of rising and, and more widespread prosperity, uh, something that happened in the second half of the 20th century uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, today, more people can afford to live alone than ever before. And you get that from market economies, and you also get that, crucially, from welfare states. Uh, when you have generous welfare states that uh, provide subsidized housing and guaranteed access to health care and home care and a, a social insurance, what we call social security in the United States, it makes it much easier for people to have domestic independence. Uh, and that, that, that's unmistakably a key part of the story here. But affluence, prosperity, that's not enough. And we know that because there are parts of the world where there's lots of wealth, but very little living alone. So, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, almost no one lives alone. And the reason for that is mm. another big driver of living alone is women's independence, women's economic independence, and also their capacity to control their own lives, to control their own bodies. When women enter into the paid labor market and gain sexual independence and personal independence, uh, they are able to delay marriage, and now people delay marriage longer than ever. They're also able to get out of marriages that aren't working through divorce without worrying about sentencing themselves to a lifetime of poverty or having to move back in with their families. So this is a big part of the story I tell. It seems like um, what you also describe as people delaying marriage and the kind of social opportunities that are available today that might have not been the case before, that's also in part driving this change as well, right? Very much so. You know, I have to say when I started this book, I had finished the, the heat wave book, which was about older people dying alone in Chicago. And I really thought I would wind up telling a story about older people living alone, being vulnerable and isolated. I thought that's what I would discover through research. But it turns out that in recent decades, the fastest growing group of people living alone are young adults under the age of 35. In fact, there's a whole new part of life where young people are living by themselves and experiencing all kinds of things that previous generations did not. And again, let me put this in perspective for you. In 1950, only 1% of young adults under the age of 30 lived alone. Today, 11% do, from 500,000 in 1950 to more than 5 million uh, in 2010. This is an incredible change also. And I know that these days there's a lot of concern about the boomerang generation and this idea that the labor market has been so bad for young people that it's impossible for them to launch into the world. They leave their parents' home and come crashing back into the basement. Well, that's true. There are more young adults living with their families than in many decades. But at the same time, there are another set of young adults who are doing well and getting places of their own, paying a premium for it. In fact, from the recession in 2008 uh, to today, the proportion of young adults living alone dropped only 1%, from 12% to 11%. So this is still a big phenomenon. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting because when I've talked with like life course scholars who speak of this period, sometimes they use the language of the kind of unstructuring of the transition to adulthood. And one of the things that I've heard is, you know, this period after college 
for some individuals who go to college, it's gotten much longer about when people are kind of playing around with their careers or trying different things. And, um, you know, just talking to these scholars, sometimes I, I sense this ambivalence that it's not quite clear if this is a good or bad thing. And it seems like some people actually do think it's a, a bad thing, this, this kind of failure to launch mentality that maybe these people should be you know, transitioning more smoothly, or it should be something that happens more quickly? Well, well first of all, let, let me say that, you know, I'm a sociologist and not a, a, a judge or a pastor, and it's not my job to say if it's a good or a bad thing. Uh, you know, I want to understand this uh, without making a kind of moral judgment about it. So that said, I, I think there are challenges to this new life stage. I mean, it's unprecedented, for instance, so people don't have a roadmap for how to live. There's a lot of pressure on the individual these days to come up with a way to live. The conventional, traditional structures that oriented us in life have broken up in many ways. Uh, that's true for young people, but it's true for all of us because the family has, has changed so much. And again, that puts a lot of pressure on individuals. So, you know, what I believe now is that young people have gotten concerned, young adults have gotten concerned that employers will not make lifetime career commitments to them. The idea that you would have a job for 40 years is, is silly for most people. Uh, maybe there's some academics who, who, have, who could still get that, but for the, most of the population, you can't. Um, people have grown up these days in the midst of the divorce revolution, and they don't believe that getting married is the key to lifetime security. They're skeptical that marriages will work out, and in a good percentage of cases, they, they don't. And so young adults feel a need to invest more and more time and energy into themselves. They get more education. They build their networks. They move from job to job trying to find the thing that fits well, getting the right kind of experience. And interestingly, you know, in people's tw late 20s and early 30s, uh, they feel that that's precisely not the time to get married and tie themselves down to another person or to a lifestyle. That, that's why rates of marriage have decreased and the age of first marriage has gone up so high. In many American cities now, the age of first marriage is over 30. So, you know, th this, I think, is a, a very difficult thing. I mean, it, it suggests that there's a lot of anxiety and insecurity out there. Uh, but perhaps... Living alone is a, is a productive way to deal with that. We, you know, the, my feeling about it is that it's we just we're too early in the social experiment to really know. Reading your book, I get this I sense that you try to give a balanced account, um, trying to I don't know create a narrative that's in between what seem to be kind of two extreme positions on on this, right? Because it seems like there are some people who are almost strong advocates of of a new lifestyle. Um, of being solo, um, and then there is this kind of, um, I, I don't know, a reformer anxiety that this is a, a bad thing, that we're becoming kind of a detached society. Can you talk, talk to us a little bit about what th these two positions typically argue? Sure. Well, let me say at the outset that when I started the project, I really did think I was writing in the second of those traditions, that huh. this was going to be a book like bowling alone or the pursuit of loneliness or the fall of public man or habits of the heart or maybe even the lonely crowd. All these, these books in the history of American sociology that write about 
the the way in which we have fallen from some better period and grow right. you know more narcissistic more isolated i mean how could the rise of living alone not symbolize that in the most powerful way so that's a, a an idea that you know comes with a story that goes like this it goes you know once upon a time we lived in a world in which there were stronger communities closer friendships more successful and better marriages, safer streets, less loneliness, happier people. Once upon a time, we lived in that world, and since that time has ended, we have fallen into uh, a terrible world of atomization and isolation and sadness. We're despondent. We, we are disconnected from each other. Surely you recognize that narrative. It, it, it's part of almost all of our conversations about what's happened to the modern world. Well, what I discovered doing research on this book is that, in fact, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, first of all, there, it, it turns out that golden age never really existed. Think for a minute about the TV show Mad Men, if you will. That lands us right back into that golden age of American communities and perfect marriages. Think about the, the loneliness and the pain and the isolation that exists in the Draper family household and in many of the of the families that you see in that TV show. In a way, that show is all about the disconnection of highly connected people during this golden age. Um, we yeah, yeah, there's that, that quote. Oh, Say that again? Uh, there's that quote on one of your respondents saying that one of the loneliest things is being in a bad marriage, which I thought was really uh, profound and kind of speaks to this you know, nostalgia about being married, but maybe you can be just as disconnected uh, even when you are part of that community. Well, we know that we just need to be we just need to be honest about it. And and one of the things I, I argue for in this book is to have a more honest conversation about loneliness and isolation and disconnection, and to have a more honest conversation about about the reality of marriage and family life. Um, you know, we, we we see it on television, we see it in the movies, uh, but we pretend in social science bizarrely as if you know that's not the case. So it really is true. You know, I talked to. Uh, the, well, the majority of Americans who live alone these days are between the ages of 35 and 65. They're, they're middle-aged adults, about 16 million people. Typically, they have been married before. At least they have lived with someone else. And they say with great frequency that there is nothing lonelier than living with the wrong person. There's nothing lonelier than being in the wrong marriage. They say that people in their lives worry all the time about how lonely they'll be because they're living alone. But that in fact, when they, when they feel lonely while going solo, that loneliness is a kind of physiological cue that they should get out into the world and reconnect with people, be active, do things. It's not always easy to do that, and some people have real problems with loneliness and depression, uh, but often they can. When you're married, you're lying down next to someone in bed at night, and you feel isolated and lonely. That is a profound and difficult feeling, uh, a very difficult one, and it's not clear what the cue is. So I think sociology needs to take this seriously. And, you know, this, this gets us to another thing happening in, in Going Solo, which is that it is not a book that's just about numbers. The, the way in which you get deeper knowledge about the reality of what marriage is like, what living alone is like, is to talk to people and to try to understand experience. And that's what I spend most of my time here doing. Yeah, I, I mean, what I was saying earlier before, I was really, um, it was really 
great to read the book actually because it, it really is a quick read in some ways because you just get so involved in the different stories and hearing people's different perspectives uh, of this phenomenon. How how did you go about doing this project? I mean, um, what I know you're kind of like you said earlier on, you're following it from your last book. How did you tackle this problem, or what were you trying to find out exactly? Well, you know, I wanted to know the consequences of this social change as well as how it happened. Uh, I wanted to understand the experiences of people who lived alone at different stages of life. And so I got research support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and I hired a team of graduate students, mostly from NYU, but also some from uh, UCSF and a student from here who is in Texas. And we fanned out in different parts of New York City and the Bay Area and Texas and Chicago, uh, even in Europe towards the end of the project, and started talking to people who lived alone doing long, uh, extended, semi-structured interviews with ultimately more than 300 people uh, going solo. And we broke it into you know, four different groups. One group were people over the age of 65 who are living alone, and they account for about a third of all the singletons these days, about 11 million people in the U.S. Then people who are middle-aged adults who are the majority of those living alone. Then we had another group of young adults uh, going solo. And then we had a, a, a kind of special breakout group of uh, very poor men who are living in single-room occupancy dwellings, kind of hotel residences around the Bowery District in New York or Times Square. And these are people who are uh, the, you know, the most vulnerable, along with the elderly, uh, to the dangers of going solo. And I, I was very tuned to that because they're the people I got to know the best when I wrote my book about the heat wave in Chicago. Um, I should say that the majority of the cases in the book are people who are middle class or affluent, and that's for a reason. It's that you know you have to be middle class or affluent to live alone in, in, in most places because it's a very expensive thing to do. So starting with maybe the the younger folks that you interviewed in this affluent class of individuals, what's the, the motivations and, and how do they interpret uh, what's going on? Well, for younger people, living alone is a, an aspiration. Uh, in, in fact, these days, it means not living with your parents. It means not living with roommates. Uh, and so a typical way into getting a place of your own as a young adult is you, know, you leave school, you move to a city, you have roommates for a while, oftentimes people from from college, sometimes new people you meet on Craigslist, and you have a great time with your roommates. They're fun to be with. They bring you out into the social world. They give you a network until they don't, until they're not fun at all, until you just need to get away from them like nothing else in your life because they don't pay the rent. They leave their dishes in the sink. They're always sitting on the couch when you come home with a date. Uh, you know, they're, they're, They bring their girlfriend to move in with you, and now suddenly you've got another roommate who's not paying rent. So there are all these problems that everybody can relate to if you've had a roommate. And young adults say, if I can make enough money, I'm going to get a place of my own. That is what I'm going to do as soon as I can afford it. And they're willing to pay quite a lot of money. They will sacrifice a lot of things to get their own place. You know, why else do they want it? Because when you live alone as a young person, you have the freedom to do what you want to do when you want to do it. You have the time to invest in yourself. Uh, you can be very flexible. Um, you can experiment. Uh, you know, Michael Rosenfeld, the demographer at Penn, has written an entire book called The Age of Independence about the kind of sexual experiments that people have, mostly marrying across uh, racial and ethnic lines, 
that are just much more difficult if you're living with people who are judging you, like your family, all the time. Um, so this is, a, this is very consequential stuff. I would argue that for young people in a time when the age of marriage is so high, getting your own apartment is the way to become an adult. For a lot of affluent young people, successful professional young people, living alone is the key part of the transition to adulthood. I was actually, when you were describing this, I was reminded of my own situation, mid-20s, when I think one of my roommates moved out and I realized, you know, I don't really need a roommate and, uh, you know, I could afford to have my own place, so why don't I just invest in that? And, uh, you know, there was kind of a cost-benefit analysis that you do in your head and you kind of realize like it would be kind of nice to have my own place um and do my own thing and you know i have friends outside and i have my work um but you know why why not invest some money in myself a little bit and you know my house was just kind of my own space you know i always thought i was kind of quirky for doing that (laughs) and i felt definitely a pressure when i got older about when am i going to get married and maybe not nothing explicit but you know, you just sense that maybe you were a little bit off uh, for not following the kind of traditional outline. And I recently just got married now at 33, and uh, and I felt like I was, you know, violating some norms. But re- reading your book, it was interesting just to kind of uh, pick up on this broader narrative that other people were having that was very similar to mine, actually. Well, you know, a lot, a lot of people say that, that, that they can understand their lives in a way. Uh, as being more conventional than they had understood. Um, There are so many people who feel alone while living alone, even though they are in fact doing something that's become incredibly common. Uh, And that means they feel stigmatized, they feel aberrant, deviant in some way. Maybe their parents give them a hard time because their parents don't understand how common this has become. Maybe some friends do. But in fact, this is a reason uh, for sociologists to, to write a book like this. You know, so many things that we experience as private or personal matters are really reflections of quite common trends. And uh, I think it's a great thing for sociology to be able to help people locate their lives in this broader context. It's, it's, it's one of the main contributions that, that we can make. And so as I've gone around uh, the country giving talks about the book, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me afterwards and said something just like what you said, which you know, they, they, they have a, a capacity to see how their lives have been structured that they didn't quite have before, and they, they understand themselves to be part of something bigger. Uh, I think that's it, it's important for us to Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's great. I mean, that's, um, it, you know, it was a reflective moment reading your book because even as a graduate student going into sociology, you know, I've had professors, you know, hint that, you know, do you feel like you're a little bit off time? Uh, in terms of you know not achieving the conventional milestones of adulthood, and um, you know what you said a minute ago about being able to afford your own place is that that being kind of a new marker of a young adult. And I remember thinking like you know I don't really feel like a deviant. I'm not uh, committing crime, and you know I I was working a full time job before going back to graduate school, and you know I felt like I was doing all right. <laughs> but well, look, I'll say something else, which is that a lot of young people say that by living alone, they gain a set of skills for living uh, that serve them quite well in marriages. And in fact, we know that people who delay getting married uh, are more likely to marry successfully, to avoid divorce, than people who marry very young. 
uh, you know, this is something we need to understand. It's not as if you make a vow to live alone forever. You know, living alone doesn't require that. Instead, you uh, make a decision to try it and to experience it. Um, and I should be clear about this. I believe you cannot understand the rise of living alone outside of the concept of choice. We need to have a frank conversation about choice. Sociologists don't like to talk about choice. In the intellectual division of labor today, economists get choice and sociologists get constraint. <laughs> uh, but that seems to me like a terrible thing. Um, it's a bad move for sociology. Uh, and here in this case, we need to understand that you know, living alone is expensive. You have to pay a premium to do it at any age. And moreover, people who are single, uh, even if they're divorced or widowed or widowers, they have other choices for how to live. They could live with family members. They could live with friends. They could go on Craigslist and find roommates. They could live in an institutional setting of some kind. There are lots of choices. And in fact, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, people would not have made the decision to live alone. Uh, so something has really changed here. And we need to acknowledge that we are opting into this for some reason. Yeah, it seems in part you're making this argument that, that structurally there's more options. And when those options are available, people will actually pursue them and will pursue them for various different reasons. And I, I guess just step, stepping back one second, you know, when we're talking about marriage, I felt like there is this large literature in sociology but in psychology as well that just speaks to all these benefits of getting married and uh i know this can be kind of a contentious debate about you know methods and how that's done but how when you're writing the book i mean did you feel like you were flying against some of the traditional narratives that you hear about you know the benefits of getting married early and so forth sure i mean some of them I mean, uh and I think the benefits of early marriage are vastly overstated because the divorce rates are so high when you get when you marry early. Uh, I got to tell you, you know, I'm a married guy myself. I have two young children. I think I'm happily married, and that that a happy marriage serves me very well. We, I think it's pretty clear that if you have a happy marriage, a successful marriage, the outcomes are really good. The problem is that you can't guarantee that you're going to have that. And marriages that feel happy at you know point one can be quite unhappy and difficult at point two. Uh, it, it's irresponsible, in my view, to promote marriage without warning about the, the dangers of the loneliness and the isolation and the bad health that come from a bad marriage. Uh, we need to be more realistic about that as well. So here the methodological issues really are clear and important. Some studies show that married people live longer and are healthier and wealthier, but Many studies fail to show whether those outcomes are the cause or the consequence of good marriage. In other words, there might be characteristics of some people that make them very likely to do well in a marriage, and those are the same characteristics that make them likely to be wealthy or economically successful or psychologically healthy. And, and too many of the marriage studies uh, proclaiming the benefits of marriage fail to make that kind of uh, careful distinction in their analysis. There's some studies that show you know, high risks of, of living alone. And they compare people who've always lived alone with people who are currently married. And the problem there is that they throw out people who are who were married and then got divorced or who were married and then got and then became widows or widowers. So there the methodological problems are even more egregious. 
I'm not denying that there are benefits to good marriages. I, I, I think they are, and I'm voting with my feet on that one. Uh, but I also think it's irresponsible to tell people to stay in bad marriages or to get married early uh, because we know that those things are, could be really bad for you. Now, it almost seems like there was uh, – there's almost like a social movement of – I'm trying to remember the term that you use, like the kind of quirky something – Quirky alone. Quirky alone. That's right. And uh, can you explain a little bit about that movement? I can. You know, I didn't answer one of your earlier questions, which was about the people who are really advocates for living alone and and for being single. Uh, And there are some who are out there, and you can understand that because it it really has been a stigmatized uh, condition, and they're trying to destigmatize it. So uh, I, I don't see my book as, you know, simply saying this is the way to live, uh, because you know, as I said, I'm not trying to urge anyone to do anything with their own lives so much as to try to understand this phenomenon. And also because I recognize that there are all sorts of challenges for living alone, and the book really documents them uh, you know, extensively. There are a group of people uh, in different parts of the country who are trying to advocate for singles and singletons, my word for people who live alone. Uh, you know, groups like the Alternatives to Marriage Project, uh, which is trying to address areas of legislation in which there are real advantages to being married and disadvantages to being single. And this is true, for instance, when it comes to Social Security, uh, because married people can designate their spouse as a beneficiary, but single people can't designate another person in their life, maybe even their caretaker, uh, as the beneficiary, so they feel there's discrimination there. Uh, they deal with things like... Uh, uh, discrimination in the market for insurance, uh, and there are a whole set of, of issues for which people feel that there's still discrimination against people who are single or who live alone, and Alternatives to Marriage Project does a lot of work there. Uh, Quirky Alone is an organization started by an amazing woman named Sasha Kagan, uh, which is really about destigmatizing the experience of, of living alone or being single and explaining why so many people do it today and uh, how ordinary it, it has become. Uh, then there are groups like Women's Voices, Women Vote, which is a Washington, D.C.-based political outfit that is trying to mobilize single female voters. Uh, it's, a, it's an organization run by Democrats, and Democrats have recognized that single women tend to vote for Democratic candidates. And this organization tries to get not just advertising to them politically, but also to mobilize them as voters because single women historically have not voted at rates comparable to married women. And so uh, this this outfit is trying very hard to increase the rates of voting participation for single women. And some strategists, like Stan, Stanley Greenberg, for instance, believe that, that single women played a key role in the 2008 election and might play another key role in the 2012 election. Reading this part of the book, it was, you know, uh, again, I was like, oh, this is great. It's, it's, it's great that there's these groups out there kind of trying to rewrite the narrative of what it means to live alone and, and almost this um, sense of agency, you know, that there's, they're unapologetic about what they're doing and, it, and you know, all of these great things. And then I, I started writing on the margins of the book. Well, it seems like these people have a lot of privilege as well and uh, social capital. And you address that. Um, but then the book kind of takes a little bit of a turn when you talk about her, uh, Sasha Kagan's aunt and when she gets um, terminal cancer 
And it seems like you highlight some of the challenges of being alone. And her story, how even if you are a gregarious person, have lots of friends, when you start getting older and dealing with health issues, it could be a real challenge. And then you kind of move on discussing the real difficulties of being alone and getting family to, to rely on, on support. Well, so, you know, you're, the, the thing is that people who live alone are on average more likely to spend time with friends and neighbors uh, and even to volunteer in civic organization than people who are married. And that's true for young adults, but it's also true for older people who live alone. A really nice paper by the sociologists Benjamin Cornwell and Ed Lauman uh, shows, shows that. Um, but that said, it needs to be acknowledged that you know, for many people, living alone can lead to isolation uh, and can lead to loneliness. And if you are isolated or if you don't have a big support network, if you get very sick and something difficult that requires long-term care and you don't have family or friends who are immediately available to help you with those everyday difficulties, it can be a very uh, challenging situation. Um, I don't think that we should be shy about this. In fact, I believe that we need to have more conversations publicly about the challenges of providing care for people who live alone uh, and really need support and assistance. I don't believe that we have that conversation very effectively or productively when we talk about things like bowling alone uh, or uh, when we complain about the extent to which our society has fallen apart. That, that turns into this kind of generalized lament rather than a very specific uh, concern. But I think we could identify the people and the places uh, where isolation is really risky and dangerous and do far more to target them with services and care. Yeah, because it seems like if you are young, healthy, and you have the resources, you can kind of balance your life in such a way where you can have lots of friends, lots of activities have a real full life, but like you said, there's a real risk if you don't have those things, if you're not necessarily young, uh, have a lot of resources, and if you're not healthy. It seems like that's a lot harder to to balance, and I thought Kagan's stories highlighted that, you know, even your informal social networks, like people will try to help you out, but, you know, you could really fall into a situation where you're completely isolated or detached. Well, that, that's right, but let, let's just be clear about this. I mean, it's not as if marriage is a guarantee that that won't happen too. Right. So, you know, think for instance of men who are married for many decades who outlive their wives and their, their wives did a lot of the social networking for them. Uh, if they don't have children or they don't have strong relationship with their children or their children live far away, uh, you know, men are at much greater risk of getting isolated than women are. They, they aren't as good at making and maintaining relationships over the life course. And so it's possible that the experience of becoming a, a widower later in life uh, and not having the right set of supports built up around you can, can lead to a, a really dangerous kind of isolation too. Whereas in the book, I speak with many women who had been single and living alone for, for decades, whether they had always lived alone or more commonly had been married for a while and then divorced and decided that they would be better off living alone than living with the wrong person. They often build big support networks for themselves and have a way to get care. So it's it's not an easy situation to manage. 
uh, what's clear to me is this is this is a, a situation in which you really do need to find some kind of public program that provides support for people who can't get it uh, on their own. I think it was one of the chapters called Aging Alone. I actually asked my wife to read it because, um, you know, some of the things we've been talking about like 10 years from now, you know, what what are we going to do with our parents getting older and, you know, what would that look like? And I, I thought it was really valuable reading the book because I got a different understanding of how people confront these issues. And one of the things I thought was really surprising, I guess not shouldn't be surprising, but how this kind of ethos of being independent carries even throughout like later stages of adulthood. And sure, look, you talk to older people and you might be surprised to learn that they don't want to live with you. <laughs> they don't want to live with their children. They want to have places of their own as long as they can. And if they get to, into a situation where they can no longer take care of themselves, that where they can no longer maintain their domestic autonomy, uh, they will experience that as a real loss of face. It will be, challenging to maintain their sense of dignity and integrity uh, under those conditions. And, you know, that that is a real issue. So what I think the most advanced and forward-looking countries are doing today is trying to design places where people can age alone, but also stay connected to friends and family around them. Uh, in, uh, the book ends in Sweden, which is the world capital of living alone. About 47% of households are one-person households at the national level in Sweden. And in Stockholm, it's more than 60% of all households. And they have designed a lot of complexes where they, you know, people have their own apartments but share responsibilities like uh, cooking for each other or you know, taking care of the gardens or the library. And they're places designed for people you know, over the age of 40, not 65, uh, so you've got mixed generations of people living alone, but also being together. Uh, and, and I think we need to be much more creative about that kind of thing as we deal with our own uh, process of aging alone in this country. Yeah, it seems like the book ends with this um, discussion of public policy, and one of them is kind of restructuring you know, buildings, but also the urban environment, right? Our cities aren't built for people who live alone. Um, it, I mean – there are more good places for people to live alone in cities than in other areas, uh, but there are still a lot of challenges based on the housing stock we have available. The place where there's the biggest misfit is the suburbs, and I write a lot about zoning policies that make it difficult to build you know, multi-unit dwellings, places with uh, you know, relatively small domestic spaces but larger common areas and good access to walkable uh, commercial life. Uh, to public transit, these things are really lacking in suburban areas where a lot of people have left to raise their families and then find themselves aging, uh, but not quite fitting in. And so, uh, you know, th this is clearly a, a policy issue that I think we're going to hear more of as the boomer generation ages. Yeah, and it almost seems like we've been a little bit slow addressing these issues. And I know you've spoken to the kind of uh, why people may be dragging their feet, but well, I think we just haven't identified the social change. I mean, I, I think we've lived inside of it without recognizing how uh, common it is and what the implications are. Uh, that's true for us as individuals. It's true for communities. It's true for, for cities as well. So, uh, you know, we could find all sorts of reasons for the zoning policies that we have in, in suburbs um, or for the kind of styles of building that you see in 
in cities. It's not easy still to build housing for one per, for single person households because there is a real uh, incentive for many cities to build affordable family housing these days, and clearly that's a good thing too. But we can't pretend that this doesn't exist, and I don't think that we can moralize the problem out of existence. Uh, the, the truth is that uh, people live alone wherever and whenever they can afford to do it. Uh, it's common in the U.S., but it's far more common in European countries that have invested in generous welfare states. It is growing most quickly in countries like India and China and Brazil. Uh, there's every reason to believe that this is a fundamental change in the modern world that is here to stay. And in my view, it's folly to try to persuade people that this is a bad idea and, and to scare people off from all the dangers of doing this. We have to come to terms with the social fact that this is who we are and this is what we ought to do. And then try to adapt. Yeah, it's not like we can really turn the clock backwards and uh, reset things to how they were 50, 60 years ago. And I don't think we'd want to. <laughs> I mean, that's another part of the story. Is, uh, we have to get away from this fantasy that life was better 50 or 60 years ago uh, and that everyone was happier. I just I just think the evidence for this is, is weak and it's tempting to get into this nostalgic lament. But I think it's a, a, a dangerous road to follow. Well, Eric, thank you for being on. I think this was a, a great discussion, and it was uh, great talking to you about all these issues and dilemmas. You too. I enjoyed our conversation. To subscribe to this podcast or to learn more about the research discussed today, check out our website at thesocietypages.org slash officehours. As always, thanks to my Office Hours co-hosts, the entire TSP team at Minnesota, and the U of M's College of Liberal Arts 